Hey everybody, welcome into a live edition of the Patriots Beat Podcast. I am Evan Lazar, joined as always by Alex Bars. And Alex, we got some tough news in Patriots Nation on Monday night. Julian Edelman, number 11, calling it a career after 12 seasons in New England, announcing his retirement from professional football. And for me personally, Alex, I'm sure for you a little bit too, this one was a tough one to swallow. Just watching Edelman have to go out the way that he did due to injury, that knee obviously not allowing him to continue to play. And somebody that I think there's a lot of different narratives out there about Julian Edelman and why he was good and the toughness and the tenacious attitude and the work ethic and all those things are definitely true. But I actually think that that gives him, you know, it doesn't give him his due, his proper due about how good of a football player he actually developed into over the course of time. Yeah, he worked hard. Yeah, he was tough. Yeah, he, you know, had that tenacious attitude and that relentlessness, as his book is called, Relentless. But he also developed into one of the better route runners in the entire NFL at one point. And in his prime, I think he was right up there. Super Bowl 53 is one of the best wide receiver performances that you'll ever see, especially given the stakes. But just from a route running perspective, if young kids that play wide receiver want to go and watch how to run routes, how to run stems, how to attack leverage, how to break off the top of the route, all of those things, Super Bowl 53 is a clinic for 60 minutes of how to run routes. And I feel like we've gone into this discourse. We're going to get into some of the Hall of Fame stuff as well. But where where do you stand just on Julian Edelman's legacy on his career? I know you wrote about some of his best best moments on 98.5 as well. Yeah, well, I'll just start for me personally. And I I don't know if this is the same for you, Evan, but there's so few guys who – so like when me and I, I started covering the team for CLNS in 2017, you joined in 2018. Right. I know you covered from a distance before that. There was a lot of roster turnover around that point, especially, uh, you know, in terms of star players, there were a number of guys who kind of made their way out and there weren't a lot of guys who I rooted for. I don't want to say as a fan because I still consider myself a fan, but guys who I rooted for before I started covering the team seriously and then guys who I actually got to cover. And Julian Edelman, for me, because everybody who watches the show, regulars who watch the show know this, I was and am a huge Drew Bledsoe fan. So when Julian Edelman shows up in 2009 wearing number 11 and returns a punt for a touchdown in his first ever preseason game, I mean, I was sold. So for me to root, like I was rooting for him when I was 14, and then I covered him in the Super Bowl at 25. Right. That was... And ex- like, like, so th- there was always kind of this cool thing about, about him being a part of the team. So for me personally, that was my connection. I have a picture of the pass against the Ravens up, you know, above my desk. That's like one of my all time favorite plays. So that, that's my personal, um, thoughts on Edelman. In terms of him as a player, I think he's a guy that was never pro, like, like you said, some of the things people have said don't necessarily give him his due. I think it's hard to properly place Julian Edelman in the context of the era in which he played because he's unlike anything else that we saw in an era that was all about get the ball down the field in speed and jump ball threats and just aggressive football. Here was a guy who mastered the game within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. And I think we'll get into this a little more when we do the Hall of Fame, but I think Edelman and, and I'll throw Wes Welker in here too. And, and there's some guys from other teams you can make the case, but I think, you know, uh, uh, 21 
personnel was the default in the NFL for the longest time. And you either had two tight ends or you had a fullback. 20, it was really the fullback. 21 personnel was the default. And then the Patriots kind of were on the forefront of changing that up where they started going with 11 personnel and made the, the three wide receivers set the base. And with that came the rise of the slot receiver, that guy who was a specialist corner on the other side of the ball. They, right? Well, that, you know, when, once you had the slot receiver, that, right. that created the slot corner. But in terms of Edelman and Welker, and where I think guys like that don't get their due is I think, and, and there's other positions that fall into this, and this will be a much deeper conversation when Matthew Slater retires. But I don't think, like, wide receiver to me, isn't a, a, a position anymore. We, it isn't, it isn't. It's like saying defensive back, okay? A guy can be a, a defensive back, but he can play two completely different positions. Right. People forget, and this is the argument I got in with my friends, because I, I was talking to my friends earlier today, and they are like, how can you say Edelman was was one of the best at his position when you have Julio Jones and you have Calvin Johnson, same era, and they're throwing out names like that? Those guys, in my mind, don't play the same position. That's That's like saying that, you know, Stefan Gilmore and Ed Reed play the same position. Kind of, a little bit, but not really. I think if you go back to the etymology, wide receivers weren't always called that. They were called split ends. And that's right. where you get tight end and split end. And I think you've now seen the wide receiver position fracture where you have the outside receiver and you have the slot receiver. And certainly there's guys who can do both. There's nothing that stops you from doing both. But I think when you look at a Julian Edelman up against a guy like a Calvin Johnson, it's never going to be fair because that guy was just asked. They were asked to do completely different things and they had completely different roles. When you look at Julian Edelman, there's that meme going around right now on social media about, you know, he or she uh, always knew the role, always knew the assignment, whatever it was. When you talk about mastering the assignment, when you talk about mastering the role of what they were asked to do, did anybody master the slot receiver role better than Julian Edelman? I think it's tough to make that argument. Yeah, he he definitely, I agree with everything that you just said. And I think the biggest thing, just to reminisce just a little bit more before we bring it into the nuts and bolts of it, is we're going to show our age right now. And and for us Patriots fans that are under the age of 30, we experienced the beginning part of the Patriots dynasty in the early 2000s with Troy Brown. Wes Welker is when I started to really understand football. Randy Moss, Wes Welker, mid-2000s, right? When I was in my early teens. But then when I really understood the game and became a diehard fan of the game. That's when Julian Edelman and Rob Gronkowski came into the league. So for us Patriot fans under the age of 30, I feel like these are our guys, right? These are yeah. really our guys. I don't, I don't really I mean, who's I, who's left? Slater, Hightower? Yeah, Devin McCourty. Devin McCourty, that's yeah. it, that's it. Right, and I don't – Not it's not saying that the guys in the early part of the dynasty weren't great players, but those guys were maybe a little step ahead of my football – acumen right you know they were they were a little bit too far in the beginning so when the one in 2001 I was nine years old so yeah I watched football I cheered for the Patriots I understood things here and there but I certainly didn't understand the game the same way I did when I was 16 17 18 years old as anybody so Julian Edelman is one of our guys and I think seeing him retire last night uh, definitely struck a nerve for me or or struck a a, a sensitivity for me in the fact that, wow, you know, we're at the point here that our guys 
like uh, Edelman are retiring from football. And for some reason, I, I think a couple of years ago with Gronk, I didn't, f- I, I felt like he might come back. Now, I, obviously, I, he didn't come back in New England, but I thought that it wasn't actually it for Gronk. We, I think we can feel like this is actually it for Julian Edelman. Oh, absolutely. And I think what's different with Gronk is we knew from the beginning Gronk was not going to have a long career. He yeah. had the back injuries and he was old at 27. And when Brady left, that was kind of its own thing. Brady's been old, right? Brady's been old now for like 10 years. Julian Edelman was the next generation, right? You talked about the early dynasty and those guys, the Troy Browns, the Rodney Harrisons, the Teddy Bruskies. I mean, those guys were all, those guys were always the foundation. They were kind of viewed as the past, like, like that core of Edelman, Devin McCourty, Donta Hightower. That's the present. That's the new young core. It's always been. And then to see that guy retire and you, yeah. you know, you go from him returning that punt against Philly and you blink and he's 35 and retired. It's, it, 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 it hits. Like I know what you're saying by that. Again, it's not the same with Brady because he's his own thing, but this is really, I mean, who else from dynasty 2.0? This is the first big retirement, right? right? The next one. Will Ford kind of not really. Right. Wolfwork was trapped in that 20, 2004 to 2014 era between the Super Bowls, right? right. That was the problem with Wolfwork. And as great as he was, and he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame as well, he was trapped in that sort of era. And I want to kind of get into this Hall of Fame discussion with Julian Edelman because I think from the outside looking in, if we take our Patriots pajamas off here for a second because we just put them on for about 10 minutes and we just look at this objectively – I was tempted to wear my Edelman jersey for the second. <laughs> that would have been fine with me. He clearly does not have the counting stats or the efficiency metrics to get into the Hall of Fame, right? He's not – you put his numbers up against guys that are in this next iteration of Hall of Famers, Calvin Johnson, uh, eventually a guy like a Julio Jones, right? T.O. and Randy Moss just right. went in recent years. He doesn't have anywhere close to the numbers that those guys have. And then you also look at some of the advanced metrics or the fancy efficiency stats. I, I, I uh, texted you Aaron Schatz's tweet about his DY. DYAR, DVOA, and all that kind of stuff. Never a top 20 player in either metric. But for some reason, it doesn't feel like that matters, right? Because when you watch Julian Edelman play football, he encapsulates, and Bill Belichick, I thought, really summed this up extremely well in his statement following Edelman's announcement that he was going to retire, was not only was he all out on every single play, not only did he rise to the occasion in the biggest moments, but he also did so many different things on a football field, right? From playing defense early on in his career. Field the Eights put out a, a tweet yesterday of Julian Edelman locking down Anquan Bolden in, as a slot corner early on in his career, to returning kicks and punts, to covering kicks and punts, to playing in the slot. And at what point do we kind of give credit as well to obviously the playoff metrics, second most all-time in playoff receptions behind only Jerry Rice? There's The fact that we're discussing it and the fact that it's such a, a, a hot-button topic and such a volatile topic means that he's in the conversation, right? You know, that's, that yeah. means people are talking about it. Now, the question really is, is, is he a deserving Hall of Famer or is he Teddy Bruschi? Right. Is he Willie McGinnis, who are great football players as well, but maybe mean more to the history of the Patriots than they necessarily mean to the history of the National Football League and of pro football? So I'll go back to that spiel I gave before. There's a couple elements here. Part of it is the positions, right? Yes. When you compare Julian Edelman to to Julio Jones, to Calvin Johnson, he doesn't compare, but that's not the comparison. 
they're different positions. And I, part of this goes to the whole process is flawed. And it seems especially flawed when it comes to wide receivers. Everybody knows about Lynn Swan. The one that bites me is that, remember, they put Marvin Harrison in before Terrell Owens. Right. They were both up the same year, and Marvin Harrison was the first ballot Hall of Famer, and Terrell Owens had to wait. That's, that's not accurate. They, Terrell Owens is a better wide receiver than Marvin Harrison any day yeah. of the week. Right. And if we're going to say, well, Harrison, you know, had all these moments because he played with a great quarterback, that helps Edelman's case, but that's another story. Uh, so be, because the, the method for wide receivers is so screwed up, it gives people this argument to say, and this is, I saw this name in the chat. I've seen it all day. Uh, Tory Holt. Oh, Tory Holt should be in the Hall of Fame. You know, how can you put Edelman in before Holt? I agree. I think Tory Holt's a Hall of Famer. The, yeah. the problem is the process is broken. Saying Julian Edelman should be in, I don't think, uh, you know, it, it, it can go hand in hand with there are other guys who are deserving. Stanley Morgan, another Patriot, the all-time leader in yards per reception, Evan, six seasons of over 20 yards per catch. That's a Hall of Famer, certainly. Is that is that not a Hall of Fame resume? There's an so, extreme logjam at wide receiver right now to get into Canton. That's and, a big it, it, It's not right. even a logjam. They just won't acknowledge it. The, the, right. the Hall won't do anything about it. On top yeah. of that, and this is where the position comes in, the Hall has dragged their heels immensely in in recognizing evolutions to the game when it comes to positions and specialized positions, right? Uh, Morton Anderson was the all-time, or Gary Anderson was the all-time leading scorer. No, Morton. Morton was the all-time leading scorer for six years. Did not get in. Scored more points than anybody else in the NFL because he was a kicker. Ray Guy, without an argument, was the best punter in the history of the NFL. It took him decades to get in. We're going to have this conversation again with Matthew Slater in a couple of years. The yeah. big one for me is coming next year because next year Devin Hester is eligible. Yeah. And I do not know how you, it's a, it's supposedly, they call it the greatest team ever assembled, right? Is what some people call the Hall of Fame. I don't think you can have the greatest team ever assembled without Devin Hester. I don't believe that. And the Hall's going to come to a crossroads and Hester's the start, but basically there's a ton of these specialized position guys who are going to come up, who are great players in their roles and, and change to the game. And that's what I think the Hall of Fame is about. It's did you change the game? And whether it's Devin Hester as a kick returner, whether it's Julian Edelman as a slot receiver, whether it's a guy like Matt Forte or Darren Sproles as a pass-catching running back, whether it's it's Matt Forte covering kicks, you, uh, sorry, Matthew Slater covering kicks, you can sure. throw uh, Adam Vinatieri in there as well as a kicker. Again, seen as a specialized position, it's not 1960 anymore. Okay? It's not just 22 different positions, and that's what it is. It, there, there's depth to it now. And the Hall needs to recognize that or they're going to leave a bunch of talented players off. So, again, does Edelman have the numbers compared to the conventional wide receiver? What people would tell you in 1970 and 1980 as a wide receiver, no. But you're not comparing him to the players who played the same position. You need to compare him to the rest of the slot receivers, right? And in that case, I think he should be in. I think Welker should be in, too, in that case. But I think Edelman should be in. If not, if it's just about raw stats and it's only about the prime positions, then let's call it the Fantasy Football Hall of Fame. Then let's not put individual defenses in, right? Don't put Ray Lewis and Ed Reed in. Just put the 2,000 Ravens in. Nobody cares about individual no, the defenses. The Fantasy players, Football right? Hall of Fame is really good, though, because I think what happens, and no slight on to 
Actually, you know what? This is a slide to people that vote on the Hall of Fame. They pull up the Pro Football Reference page. They look and see what they, where they rank all time in career numbers and where how many All Pro teams have they made, how many uh, Pro Bowl teams have they made, and that's what they they base it off of. You know, on PFR in the top right corner, they have a little bio with all the awards and accolades that a player right. has earned. That's how they vote. What these voters need to do, and the fact that Richard Seymour isn't in the Hall of Fame is the exact well, same so argument. Real quick, can I add two more names? Yeah. Here, because again, I don't want to, like, I don't feel just this way about Edelman. Edelman's right. the latest victim of the system. Both happen to be former Patriots. Vince Wilfork is another guy. Doesn't necessarily have the numbers to back it up, but the way he played the game was one of the best in his position. He changed the game. And Larry Centers who was the first ever back to catch 100 passes, did it twice. Nobody else did it for another six years. When he retired, he's, he still is actually the all-time leader in catches by a running back. He was top 10 in catches all-time. Uh, just changed the game, monumentally changed the game of football. That's the kind of person who should be in. But again, these niche positions, fullback, the Hall's not going to consider. Yeah, and I also- He has comparable receiving numbers to Marshall Falk, Evan. Yeah. But there was an F instead of an H in front of the B in his position. Okay. Well, we can save the Larry Sanders podcast for. Centers. I, I said centers. All right. All okay, right. I said Sanders. Okay. No, we can save the Larry Sanders podcast for another. The point being, these, if, if you don't play corner, safety, linebacker, wide receiver, quarterback, the hall doesn't care. And that's a problem because there's other players too. Guess what? We're going to take a second to shout out our friends at betonline.ag. BetOnline, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. BetOnline even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. Real-time updated odds and props and almost anything you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today. Receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit bet online your online sportsbook experts don't sit on the sidelines anymore get in on the action don't forget to use that promo code clns50 to receive a 50 percent welcome bonus with your first deposit i just think that what you said about it being the fantasy football hall of fame is right. a really good point because what these voters need to do and i think the reason why we're so passionate about it is because Patriots players tend to be a little bit more team-oriented in terms of the dynasty, right? A lot of these guys don't have the raw counting stats to get in because they have a lot of different mouths to feed or they played a, a, a position like Vince Wilfork or Richard Seymour that wasn't eating up stats, right? Richard Seymour didn't eat up sacks in his career, and that's why he's had a tough time getting in. But in terms of what they were, their impact on the team, and if you actually turn on the tape and watch the football games and watch what these guys did and see how they centered the scheme around a lot of these people, all of us that we can, that have watched Julian Edelman play, know that he was the straw that stirred the drink in New England in the offense. Gronk was the big play guy. Gronk was the number one target most of the time when he was healthy. But Julian Edelman was the chains mover. Julian Edelman was the between the numbers scrapper. And, and there was something to be said for how important that role was in their offense from Welker to Brown to Branch to Edelman eventually, right? And these raw numbers, it gets so just caught up in what the calculator says or what the spreadsheet says. Watch the games 
and see how these players actually impact the game that's being played on the field. Because I can tell you right now that you can let every single, you know, Tory Holt into the Hall of Fame. And I will tell you when a big game came around and it was the AFC championship game or it was the Super Bowl, defensive coordinators had just as much trouble sleeping over Julian Edelman as they did Torrey Holt because Julian Edelman, they knew was going to show up in that big game, right? They knew that he was going to be a problem against them. Kansas City, the Rams in that Super Bowl run, they knew that Julian Edelman was coming and he played great against the Chargers in that run too. He had three straight games of just excellent play in all three. And I just think that that's the, the argument. I'm not saying that he necessarily deserves to get in. I'm saying that if you want to make an impassioned case for Julian Edelman, because it's a long shot to make it based off of the total stats and the raw numbers and all that kind of stuff. If you want to make the case for him, you have to say, Look at the impact that he had. Look at the impact that he had on the game, the scheme, the system, how defenses played the Patriots, how defenses evolved to face the Patriots, like you were bringing up with the iterations of the slot receivers and stuff like that. Where at what point does that matter? And also at what point does letting in some of these Patriots from the greatest run in NFL history, all those steel curtain guys, those guys are all in, right? Swan. Yeah, all those guys got into the Hall of Fame back in the, you know, from, from dominating the seventies. A lot of the guys on those Niners teams got in. A lot of those Cowboys teams, those guys got in. The Patriots haven't had that same kind of treatment that a lot of these players are getting in. The fact that Richard Seymour is struggling to get in a little bit, the fact that we're not 100% sure if Vince Wolfork is going to get in, those are players that I think we need to argue a little bit harder for than Julian Edelman, certainly. But I, I think that that's definitely where the case needs to be made, is that Julian Edelman was an extremely impactful player. Maybe outside of Tom Brady, you could argue on offense, the second most important player on an offense that won three Super Bowl championships. And that definitely needs to matter. So, and I'll add this again, because I see people saying the Edelman argument is emotional and he just retired. It's, it's about, I don't know if I'd be pushing so hard for Julian Edelman. If he's just, again, for me, he's the latest case in, there's a ton of football players who get left out because they don't play the sexy positions. I'll, I'll ask you, Evan. It, it, and I, I think there's some guys that, you know, the stats are good and obviously some stats are impressive, but I think there's some guys you watch and you just know. You just know yeah. that what we are watching is special. It will never be I don't duplicated. Know I don't know if Edelman passes that test. Well, That's so I think he does at his peak. Right? He did in the playoffs. He did right. in the playoffs. Right. And that to me is that. Right. That that to me is another problem. Is I feel like we use playoffs subjectively in the Hall of Fame. Why is Eli Manning going to get in? Because oh, his last name is Manning, and he was on two Super Bowl teams, and he was a quarterback. And, and not only so. So here's Eli, here's the thing. The problem with Eli though is that he played for so long that he's in the top ten in a lot of counting stats. Right. Career passing. Eli Manning would be just the second quarterback in history to make the Hall of Fame with a record as 500 or worse. Do you know who the other one is? I don't, but you can tell me. Joe Namath. Oh boy. Where did where did Joe Namath play? Yeah. Where did he like? Yeah. There, it, it, it's, uh, so we can use the Super Bowls yep. to prop up Eli Manning because he's a Manning and that's fun, but we can't use the playoff numbers and the playoff performances to prop up Edelman, even though, guess what? The playoff numbers should matter more than the regular season. They shouldn't disqualify. If a guy's on a team that never makes the playoffs, it shouldn't disqualify him. 
but it should certainly be a plus if the guy gets in. But back to my original point, Evan, you know, a, a guy like Devin Hester, again, is Devin Hester in your mind a Hall of Famer? Yes or no? Yes. And, and, and I, I, I think so as well. And I think the reason that one's interesting for me is I, I think for, for these guys voting on the Hall of Fame, it's so hard for them to accept slot receiver, third down back, nose tackle, right? The positions that haven't been around for a hundred years, but you, you can't put Hester in as a wide receiver. He was an average at best wide receiver at his peak. But again, the best returner, I believe, best career returner in the history of the game. I think Dante Hall at a higher peak, but that's another story. Devin Hester's kickoff return to start the Super Bowl. Iconic. Iconic moment of that Super Bowl. And Peyton Manning won the Super Bowl for the first time in that game. And people, I think, still remember the Devin Hester kickoff return more. So here is my point. I think that it's going to be a lot easier for some of these guys, some of these olds, as we like to call them, to swallow – Okay, we can put a kick returner in. Like yeah. kick returner that like, but the, the hope is then, okay, if a kick returner's in, kick coverage. And then you get into Matthew Slater and then you can get into the third down backs and the wide receivers. So it's not, again, this conversation is bigger than Edelman, I believe. It's about the Hall of Fame needs to finally recognize that there's more than the, there's more positions than the ones you see in your fantasy football lineup. That's, that's, I think the two biggest things that we have to get over here is that the, the the biggest thing to me with the Hall of Fame voting that drives me absolutely nuts is that we vote off of statistics and off of accolades. How many Pro Bowls did they make? How many All-Pro teams did they make? Did they hit some arbitrary threshold in career receiving yards or something like that? And all of these things to me are just infuriating because any football coach can tell you who is a better player, this guy versus that guy, and that's what we should be voting on, right? Is who to is me, it's more impactful player. Who is the harder guy to block? Who is the harder guy to scheme against? Who is the harder guy to to game plan for? Right? That's the arguments that we should be having. Not this guy has eight thousand screen, you know, receiving yards, and the next guy has seven thousand receiving yards. Uh, that that right. doesn't make any sense to me. To me, it's Julian Edelman is not a Hall of Famer by the current standards, but. The caveat to that is I don't believe the current standards of Hall of Fame voting reflect the modern game, and that's yeah. the problem. Yeah, I agree with all that. Larry right. Center should be in one more time. Larry uh, Center's podcast. <laughs> well, let's take some questions. Uh, if you have some wait, questions. Wait, wait, wait. I want to do one more Edelman thing here real quick. Okay, go ahead. Because we were texting about this, and, there, you know, a lot of questions about who's next. Yes. And I oh, want to address I want to address the Gunnar Oshevsky in the room. Do it. Let's do it. Because I wanted you to do this because I won't do it. I'm not gonna. Here's here's the here's the real quick thing about Julian Edelman Gunnar Oshevsky. When Julian Edelman came up, and you you hear everybody seen the clip of the punt return against the Eagles, and Gil Santos saying he's like Julian Edelman in progress, right? At he's like Wes Welker in progress. At that time, if I told you the seventh round pick from Kent State. Was going to go on to be all right. Yes, what, what I, Welker was. So the next quarterback the Patriots draft in the sixth round, we should just start to call. Well, him no. Brady, so right? so here's so here's the thing, and I wrote about this last year after the Chargers game, right when Gunner had that huge game. Right. Is if you look at the 
people forget, like Edelman hardly burst on the scene. There were what four or five years before he really Mike became Green the guy. He was getting booed in his first training camp by the right. fans because he was muffing punts when he was trying to field punts. He was drafted in 2009. He didn't assume a, ma- a major role until 2013. Right. If you look at the similarities in in both usage and development, Gunnar Oshesky is kind of where where he is now is where Edelman was at that. Yeah. There's nothing that says that that trend is going to continue. And there's nothing like there's no reason to assume that that trend is going to continue. It probably won't. But I think the reality is you have to look at this and say they've had this mold of player before. They've done this. They've turned him into that guy. Like we've seen this movie before play out. So I think it's ridiculous to say Gunnar Oshevsky's taking over. I do think that's ridiculous. But I I do think it's fair to recognize He's hit certain benchmarks that are impressive, and he's kind of getting to where Edelman was. Edelman stayed on the roster initially as a punt returner. If he couldn't return punts, he never would have made it those five years before he got a main role in the offense. Gunnar Oshevsky led the NFL in punt return average last year and was an all-pro. So that that's the quick spiel. I'm just saying that so far the same boxes have been checked. That could end this year, and Gunnar's peaked, and that's it. I just want to point out that the same boxes have been checked to this point. So the biggest also, issue is Jacoby Myers is a good slot receiver. Like he yeah, could so end up grabbing. Jacoby Myers, that, that, those are my two issues for Gunner right now. Yeah. The first one I wanted to go over quickly was that I actually view Gunner Oshesky as a little bit of a different receiver than Julian Edelman. He is somebody that every single time out in training camp that we've seen him or in the preseason, he has actually fared much better playing on the outside than in the slot. And as somebody that wins more on a vertical route tree than on a quick under underneath juke series type of route tree. Now Edelman kind of evolved over the years and became a little bit more of an intermediate field stretcher as well, you know, going across the field on crossers and over routes and things like that. But eventually Gunnar Oshevsky, I think, needs to show me a little bit more change of direction on a dive, right? Is this, is he truly that type of guy? He kind of strikes me as a little bit more of like a, a build-up speed type of player that wants to get up the field quickly. Is he ever going to develop that? The other thing is we saw Julian Edelman, since we started covering the team, Alex, he would be out there, what, uh, three hours, four hours before the kickoff doing the one-handed catches and in the uh, lighthouse end zone, right? Yeah. Uh, you need to be up at 5 a.m. every single morning to get to get from where Julian Edelman was to where Gunnar Olszewski was to where Edelman ended up. Right. You need right. to have that type of work ethic, that type of competitive nature. And if you don't have that, then he is has too much ground to cover to get there right. with just going percent. He has Julian Edelman willed himself to NFL superstardom. Right. And I don't know that anybody else has done that. And that's part of what makes it impressive. But he I mean, he did that with his own will, and that was it. It was and that's hard why, and, and similar, it's a similar conversation with Tom Brady, and that's why I think you know I always try to to, to bring that up because I think it it's unfair to Edelman, it's unfair to Brady to not point out that those guys had to literally sacrifice it all all the time and go all out all the time to get to that point. You know, that's a lot of work that was put in a lot of hours before anybody sees a kickoff, anybody sees the game happen between the lines. These guys are working at it, right? The other right. element of it is I don't know if the Patriots are going to give Gunner the opportunity unless there's a lot of thing, injuries and things going on, right? Because yeah. Jacoby Myers, Nelson Aguilar, and Kendrick Bourne all have experience playing inside. And I also wouldn't rule out 
drafting another receiver to add to that room as well that could be a slot receiver type is too. You know, a guy like Amari Rogers or Dwayne Eskridge who they've talked to, or even somebody earlier on like a Devontae Smith. If you start talking about these types of players, you're going to start talking about them playing more inside. So at what point does Gunner get on the field? It, with Edelman, it was Welker, and then Edelman was the next guy, right? That, right. that was how well, was so, so just again, with that timeline, we based on that timeline, we still have three more years before right. Gunner would. So, and I, I don't know. I, I think with Jacoby's size, at some point, he gets moved to more of a hybrid role where he's not like a true slot. I think they'd like to see him play more on the outside just – given kind of what he can do. So maybe that that's kind of in that in that assumption and opening that up. But again, there's a lot of projecting here. I'm yeah. just pointing out that, that, there's, that there's, there's a lot some of guys that now. Edelman also had to overcome, technically overcome Danny Amendola as well, right? They signed Danny right. Amendola thinking that well, he I guess he, he would be, Amendola would be the Jacoby Myers in this. More analysis. or less. So I did, that's the biggest problem I see for Gunner more, more so than his skill set. Like maybe he can develop into that type of, of route runner and that type of change of direction type of player. But I think the biggest issue is that he's going to have a lot of guys that he's going to have to leapfrog in order to get those reps to be able to prove that he can be that guy anyways. So that's the Gunner Oshesky minute. We also did a couple of, uh, on, replacements, obviously guys on the roster, Myers, Aguilar, Bourne, all have experience inside. We can talk about draft guys now. If you guys want to ask questions about certain players, wide receivers in the draft, we might like. But I wanted to bring up this question because I think Alex and I are actually maybe in differing opinions. I'm not 100% sure about your your Mon versus Trask take, but somebody asked uh, if I could touch on why I like Kellen Mond more than Kyle Trask and, and said, don't say mobility. That is a big reason why, right? The fact that Kyle Trask is a literal statue in the pocket has to play a little bit of a role in this conversation. But I think with Kellen Mond versus Trask, in particular, those two guys going head-to-head, the biggest two differences that I see with Kellen Mond that make me like him more than Kyle Trask, the first one is the arm talent, right? I think he has a much better arm, much liver arm, can throw on the move, can throw outside of structure, can make throws all over the football field a lot easier than Kyle Trask. The other thing is decision-making. Kellen Mond was a very good decision maker for the most part, took care of the football. Kyle Trask, he, he he needs to be a smarter passer and needs to be safer with the football to reach his ceiling because he's going to have to be more of that game manager type of quarterback in the NFL. And right now he he does throw, I would say, one to two passes a game that are head scratchers, throwing into safety rotations, throwing into leverage where they're really interceptable passes. And those, I think, are the two biggest reasons why I have Mond ahead of him, along with the athleticism and the ceiling and the, of the mobility and everything that uh, else that Kyle and Mond bring to the table. I know you're not anywhere near as high on Kelamond as I am, so maybe you have Trask closer or Trask above, but where do you stand on this one? Yeah, I'm I'm still out on both of them. I want a guy who realistically within a year can be a playoff caliber quarterback, and I think they have the assets to get that guy. I think there are plenty of those guys in this draft. Well, not plenty, but there's five of those guys in this draft. I think they should get one. I think anything short of that is a disappointment. Uh, I, I go back and forth on Trask. I, you know, it just depends what kind of mood I'm in, honestly. I, I really struggle to get a read on the guy. He makes some incre- impress- impressive throws, sorry, but at the same time, he has Kadarius Tony, he has Kyle Pitts. What kind of situation are you putting him into? I think Kellen Mond's kind of the opposite where he's very baseline and it's, okay, I see what he is. I like him. I don't love him. There's nothing that screams to me like, wow, 
you need to get this guy. You know, he like there's no trait where I'm like, oh, that's the Kellen Mond trait in this draft, right? Like mobility. Justin Fields is the mobile quarterback in this draft. If you're talking about, you know, physical athletic upside, I think Trey Lance is, is the quarterback in this draft. If you're talking about, you know, scheme fit, I think Zach Wilson's a guy for a lot of those teams picking at the top that if you want the guy that, that fits your scheme, you're going to go and draft Zach Wilson. I don't know. And, and again, tell me if I'm wrong. And I'm not saying Trask is one of these traits. I don't know that he does, but with Mond, I don't know that there's anything that pops out to me. And I'm like, Oh, if you want this, Kellen Mond, or, Here's the trait with Kellen Mond. Value is if you want a quarterback, but you don't want to use a first round pick, that's Kellen Mond. So I just, I, I can't get excited about either one of them. I want to ask you when somebody kind of mentioned it in the chat there, do you have Mills ahead of Trask now? No, I don't. Okay, good. Okay. Cause I was going to ask that. So Davis Mills is very inexperienced and has a whole lot of more issues with turning over the ball, even more than Kyle Trask does, right? I mean, he was a turnover right. machine. I think it's something like 17 turnover-worthy plays in his 11 starts is the stat. That That's not going to get it done for me. So, so wait, I, 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 I am just curious, though. Do you believe either one of these guys has that trait, where they are the quarterback for that trait in this draft? I, I don't know if Kellen Mond has a, a special trait. What I see with Kellen Mond is a quarterback that was in an offense that really held him back, both from a schematic standpoint and also more so from a supporting cast standpoint. And I really wonder if we can put Kellen Mond in an imaginary world, if we could put Kellen Mond in Florida's offense – how good is he, right? What are his stats right. look like? What does his tape look like? Because we talk about this a lot with Mac Jones, the Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, he had all these weapons, yada, yada, yada. We don't necessarily – I think that there are two different levels of prospect, right? I think Mac Jones is a much better prospect than Kyle Trask. Kyle Trask is, I think, the prospect that people think Mac Jones is, right, that don't yeah. like Mac Jones. Kyle Trask is the guy to me that had – to one generational talent on his team catching passes from him and Kyle Pitts, right? We right. haven't seen a tight end prospect like Kyle Pitts in a very, very long time. And he had Kadarius Tony, And he had the underclassman who I'm blanking on right now who's a really good wide receiver too. And he Grimes, right? Yeah, Grimes. So those three guys are all going to be NFL players. And Kadarius Tony and Kyle Pitts might both be first-round picks. So we talk a lot about this with Alabama. Kyle Trask's stats, the 40 touchdowns, all this, I completely throw it out. Completely throw it out because he is, you watch him play on tape. He is a guy that is putting the ball generally in good areas for Kyle Pitts and Kyle Pitts is mossing people left and right. How much credit right. are we really going to give to the quarterback in that case? Kadarius Tony, right? He's throwing the ball underneath the defense. Kadarius Tony is taking a throw behind the line of scrimmage and turning it into a 40 yard game, right? How, how much is right. that really on the quarterback? I think again, people that knock Mac Jones for supporting cast. They're really thinking of, of Kyle Trask. He's the guy that, yeah. that really benefited the most from all of those types of things. So I think that that's why I'm concerned about Kyle Trask is because I don't think that he does anything spectacular outside of the, of the scheme, outside of structure, on top of the fact that, uh, that he brings to the table, right? Whereas I see a little bit more with that ability with Kellen Mond to maybe do some of those things. So that that's a big thing for me. In terms of Mond over, over, uh, Trask, yeah. we can talk a little bit about Mills as well. I, I think the concern that you have with Mills is too, I, I compared him to Jared Stidham because I think this tape is really similar to Jared Stidham tape at Auburn. I can 
sequence together 10 throws right now of Davis Mills and, and my file on my computer of great throws that Davis Mills has made. I can also sequence together 10 interceptions from Davis Mills or 10 boneheaded decisions or 10 just awful throws that he has made. So he's either great or he's terrible. There's just no in-between with him. And some team is going to sell themselves on the great and being able to you know refine him to consistency, right, to be somewhere in the middle where he's a more consistent player. But he has never been that at Stanford. And I have concerns that he's ever going to be that in the NFL. So for those reasons, I'm out on him until about the third or the fourth round. I think a team's going to take him in the second round, though, because I think that he looks like an NFL quarterback, and we don't have to get into all of that right now. But I think that he has the arm, he has the, the stature in the pocket, the poise in the pocket at times, but he is somebody that's either fantastic and on his game or awful. And the UCLA game is really a great example of that because that's the tape that everybody tells you to watch to fall in love with Davis Mills. He threw three picks and a pick six, but he also threw for 400 yards, right? And that's, that's the Davis Mills experience in a yeah. nutshell. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I think with all these guys, and it goes back to, remember when they were all making those throws, like the rollout, off shoulder, turn back around? Yeah. Like, you don't, I think people forget that, you know, we say, oh, a prospect sucks. Like, to play, to be a D1 college quarterback, you have to be so freaking good at football. Yeah. Like, so good. And these guys all have immense physical skills. You know, Ian Book, and I trash on Ian Book all the time, right? Ian Book's going to go to the park where a bunch of people are playing football and just throw touchdowns every single time. Right. right. Ian Book could go up to Cannon and probably dominate. But the point is, so what you need, you can't just look at, oh, look at this throw. Oh, look at this move. Like, that's the Aaron Dobson rule. That's what I learned at a young age, that you cannot judge a prospect off one play, because Aaron Dobson right, right. made a catch where, like, he went back here, right? You can't judge a prospect like that, because all these guys from a base level are so supremely talented. You have to look at who's doing it consistently and then who has what it takes between the ears to allow themselves to develop. And that's a guy like, I think all five of those top quarterbacks fit into that mold, right? Not only are they supremely talented at throwing the football, they're consistently talented and you can tell the mental makeup is there. And that includes Justin Fields. I know there's been some questions about that. We're going to get into Justin Fields in a second. Right. Yeah. So the the point being, you, when you look at so when you go to that next tier, a lot of it becomes about consistency. And yes, you can put you can find one for one a play that David Mills made and a play that Trevor Lawrence made, and say, oh look, they're the same throw. The difference is Trevor Lawrence is going to make that throw a hundred times. David Mills maybe only made it five, and right. that's. When you're evaluating quarterbacks, that's what it comes down to. It's not who can make the throw. Odds are they can all make the throw. It's who can make the throw every single time they need to do it. That's where the question is. I did like – there was a, a question there about ranking the slot receivers in the draft. Okay. It sounded a little so, fun. Okay, let's uh, I, let's wrap up these quarterback questions. Okay. Okay, oh, we got another quarterback one? All right. Yeah, so the Patriots uh, – Three teams, as uh, Jeffrey says here, the Patriots, the Falcons, the 49ers are going to be at Justin Fields' second pro day. I believe it's next week. Justin Fields' first pro day, the Patriots sent Elliot Wolf, one of their top consultants, scout consultants, to the pro day. Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels were watching Mac Jones at Alabama that day. So the Pats are going to come back and watch Justin Fields on the second day. We'll see if Bill himself is there or if they send another Elliott Wolf type or something like that or, or if McDaniels himself is there. 
But I, I think today Mel Kuyper also released his mock draft and had a 4.0 or whatever it was and had the Patriots trading up to 10 to take Justin Fields. So there are a, a lot of chatter, and we'll see if it all ends up happening, but there's a lot of chatter that Justin Fields might be the quarterback that slides a little bit in this draft. And I, I don't know if that's – there's a lot of discourse to get into with that, right, obviously, that I don't think we necessarily need to talk about. But in terms of – what do we make of the Patriots going to Justin Fields' pro day? We did hear those Daniel Jeremiah uh, reports that the Patriots were rumored to be high on Justin Fields as well. If Bill Belichick somehow comes away from this draft with the second-best quarterback in the draft because all the other teams talking themselves into some bogus about Justin Fields not getting off his first read or something like that, then, like, let's throw a party. You know what I mean? Because it's just absolutely ridiculous that one of the most accurate downfield throwers in this draft, one of the most athletic and physically talented throwers in this draft is going to fall to 10 because Zach Wilson and Mac Jones are going to go ahead of him. It's blasphemy. It's absolute blasphemy. And I had somebody tweet at me, I think last week and ask, you know, why we don't asking, you know, why don't you guys, why don't me and you like Justin Fields? And I was, what do you mean? We never talk about him. And yeah. the reason we never talk about Justin Fields is because we thought he'd be the second player off the board, right? We always said, we're, we're assuming Lance and, Lance and Jones, Lance and Jones. That was the working assumption for months. I mean, we've talked about this a little bit. Justin Fields, tremendously talented player. The, the, the prototype is a little bit of a square peg in a round hole for the Patriots offense. Yeah. They are going to have to make some adjustments, but I think if you can get a player that's that, that has that much raw talent, that's that good, that has shown you that much, then I, I make the adjustments. It's that simple. I think you make the adjustments. So and I would also argue that out of all the quarterbacks in this class, Justin Fields operated the most pro heavy system, right? He was operating in the pocket. Not a really a running quarterback like people think, just because he's super athletic. I think there was actually times on his tape where you wish that he ran a little bit more instead of just standing in the pocket. I mean, are you not including Lawrence in this? Because Clemson's pretty... It's pretty pro style, but Clemson runs a lot of RPOs. They run a lot of screens still. They run a lot of things to play action. Justin Fields didn't get a lot of aid from the scheme at all. He was reading full field progressions, option routes where they're breaking at 10, 12 yards and making options based off the coverage, right? He's reading a whole lot of stuff. And that at times was overwhelming for him, I think. But ultimately what I, what I saw is that an offense that, you know, all these college offenses, they're spreading the field. They're running RPOs left and right. Even Alabama, they run a ton of RPOs, right? A ton of play action passes. Not the same at Ohio State. Ohio State put a lot on Justin Fields' shoulders and he was able to carry it. And he was one of the most accurate passers by most charting metrics that we have seen for years. You know, if we're going on four or five years, you'd have to go back to like Baker Mayfield maybe is up there as well to, in terms of just pure downfield accuracy. And the fact that we are talking about him falling to the Patriots and the Patriots not having to trade up to four to even get him, right, because they might not even right. have to, is uh, – it's just crazy to me. And I, I think that that's, that's a, good for the Patriots if that ends up happening. If all these teams end up passing on him, then good for the Patriots. But in other drafts, I mean, Justin feels a better prospect than Kyler Murray was. You know what I mean? Like oh, absolutely. He, he might even be a better prospect than Joe Burrow was. He didn't have the season that Joe Burrow had last year. But in terms of just physical raw talent and raw ability, 
he, he's right up there with Joe Burrow, if not ahead of Joe Burrow. So in other drafts, I think Kyle, uh, excuse me, Justin Fields is a, a lock for 1.1. He's the number one pick in the draft. But I would, teams are overthinking it, in my opinion, if he does fall. We'll see. I'm still not convinced that he gets by the 49ers. Like, I still think the 49ers might be smokescreening all of this with Mac Jones and all, and all that kind of stuff. I don't know what they're smokescreening because the two teams in front of them are picking their guys. So there's no reason for them to lie necessarily. But something tells me that they're still going to take Justin Fields because I just can't imagine them trading up what they traded up to give up to draft Mac Jones over Justin Fields. It's, yeah. That's just crazy. And one of the big concerns with Fields, and I've had this concern at times, and I've kind of talked myself out of it, is the Ohio State connection. And yeah, Ohio State has had no luck developing NFL quarterbacks. That's not breaking news. But, again, there's the Georgia connection. Yeah. And Georgia's done a much better job, and he's been in that system. I think at Ohio State, there's just so much talent. compared. Ohio State recruits at an SEC level. Whereas the rest of the Big Ten recruits at a Big Ten level, and there's a there's a talent gap there, I think. Yeah. But he had the experience at Georgia and all of that. Again, I if they can get him, you know, I I probably I think he's the second most talented quarterback. I think he's the third best fit for the Patriots. Yeah. I still like Trey Lance a little bit better for the Patriots because I I just I think he fits in so perfectly for what they are doing right now. And I think it's seamless. I think you have to take a little bit of a detour if you go with Fields, which is always scary, but they're really close. And in terms of pure talent, I actually think Fields is better. If they end up with him, they they did fine. They they they, as long as they don't draft Marco Wilson or Ian Book, they got an A. They'll be throwing rockets up the seams to Hunter Henry and John Smith in no time if they draft Justin Fields. I'm, I'm not, they'll have to become a little bit more vertical based, certainly, and they'll have to play into the fact schematically that he might hold the ball a little bit longer than what they're used to, right? But right. in terms of the things that he can do, he, he actually unlocks almost in a way more stuff for them to do because he's so physically talented that they'll be able to figure that out. So you wanted to rank these, this, uh, Let's do, I think this could be fun. I, yeah, so this can be fun. A question that I have right off the bat before we get into it is does Jalen Waddle and Devontae Smith count? Because I think let's just do pure. Like straight up Edelman replacement slot receivers. Okay. All right. So if we're going just pure slot guys. So hang on. I, I have the, uh, NFL mock draft database consensus big board here. I can share this. We can, we can try to get to, to the top five ish, right? So, uh, right. I, so I don't know if we can move things around, but I, so here's all the receivers. Okay. We can, we can pull this up. There we go. So. I, this is this is the let's consensus take, order. I guess let's, let's take do the do you, top three guys out because like those guys okay. are special talents. They're kind of their own thing, right? Damon's not really a slot guy either. He's a he's a Z. He's definitely a Z. But he, he I would say that he can run more routes on the outside than the okay. pure slot guys, right? You know, he, yeah. he's he's somebody that can kind of move around the formation. Kadarius Tony at number one feels right. I, I want it. I think there is a case for Elijah Moore, but I think Kadarius Tony. He's a little bit raw in terms of his route running ability, but he's so good with the ball in his hands that I so think, if it, you know, he's got great, he's the running back with the ball in his hands, right? Great contact yeah. balance, great vision, elusiveness, explosiveness, all those types of things. So I would agree with Tony as the number one pure slot. This guy's going to play in the slot 75, 80% of the time. Yep. And I would agree with you as well. So then Terrace Marshall, very much not a slot receiver. No. 
So this is where it gets interesting because you have a bunch of guys right here that I think are interchangeable depending on, you know, what teams like. So everybody loves Rondell Moore. I have a lot of hesitancies with Rondell Moore. If you're going to take Rondell Moore in the top 50, only playing seven games in the last two years, you are putting a lot of stock in him being able to stay healthy. And he has not proven that he can stay healthy at any point. So I would put Elijah Moore and I would put Amari Rodgers ahead of Rondell Moore because I'm more, I'm more confident in those guys staying on the field and producing for me than Rondell Moore as great of an athlete and player as Rondell Moore has been. So I would go Kadarius Tony, Elijah Moore, Amari Rodgers, Rondell Moore, Dwayne Eskridge. So I, those are my top five slot guys. I would make a couple adjustments. I with Elijah Moore, I have some questions about. His maturity, I, the 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 Egg Bowl, the 2019 Egg Bowl. I don't know if you know if you know what I'm referring to, Evan. I don't. But okay, so the Egg Bowl is the biggest game of the year. Miss, Ole Miss versus Mississippi State, biggest game of the year for each team. And uh, Ole Miss pulls off this incredible comeback. They drive down the field. They score what should have been the game time touchdown today with four seconds to go. It actually was Elijah Moore who scored a touchdown. He then celebrates by getting down all fours and lifting his leg like he's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep going. That. Okay. And penalty knocks the extra point back. They miss it, and Ole Miss loses by one. I just – when I look at that, if we're talking about them in, in, in reference to the Patriots, I can't imagine Bill Belichick sees that and says, I'm going to draft this guy. They have a notoriously small draft board. They're looking for reasons to remove that's guys. Okay. So – that's where, I mean, to me, I, I, the reason I think it's important to, to talk about stuff like that is, hey, you, I agree that that's how they think. But most importantly, I think the Patriots are going to see Kadarius Tony. They're going to see Elijah Moore. And those guys are probably going to go either beginning of, uh, end of the first round, beginning of the second round. And they're going to say, we're just going to take Dwayne Eskridge at, at, at 96, right? You know, yeah. we're just going to take Amari Rogers. We're, we're going to trade Amari Rogers at, at 60. We're going to trade back from 46, get a couple of picks, maybe trade it, a pick into next year or something like that. And then we're going to get Amari Rogers at 60, who we view as the same type of player as Kadarius Tony or as Elijah Moore. And we actually like his fit in the Patriot way and the culture and all those types of things a little bit better. And I can't necessarily disagree with that, right? I, I think that right. both those guys, Eskridge is a four-down player. He's a Nettleman. You know, he's a guy that played receiver, played a little bit of corner, returns kicks, covers kicks. You know, he does everything, right? He can be a guy that can be on like five or six different special teams units for you as well as play slot receiver. That's their type of guy. They're going to see that as a huge value, over a guy like an Elijah Moore, who might be a little bit more of a polished receiver, but isn't going to bring the rest of that package to the table. So that's the Patriot way in terms of the draft is you take your Elijah Moore at 31. We're going to take our Dwayne Eskridge at 85, as they have him ranked here, and we're going to call it a day. That's the Patriots right there. I do have to bring up Jalen Darden, though. And okay. I know you don't like the size, but again, this is a guy who I like it better than Tutu Atwell's size. He's 155 pounds, so. right? Exactly. Here, I mean, we talked about the hard work with Edelman, right? Jalen Darden's a guy who wasn't a highly touted high school recruit. Yeah, uh, you know, didn't get the Power Five offers. Goes to North Texas and has just, you know, by all accounts, everybody down there just grinded and grinded and put in all of the work behind the scenes to get himself to this point. He's a guy who on the field. Loves contact, is not afraid of contact, is not afraid to be hit, will fight through contact, knows how to make people miss. I think he's got the mental makeup 
I both in terms of the, the football mental makeup and the personal mental makeup. Uh, you know, he's very slippery. He's very elusive. He can create after the catch. The yeah. size is certainly a bit of a red flag, but you know, well, all right, you can take your Dwayne Eskridge at 96. We're going to take Jalen Darden at 120. So I the think bigger, you could keep going with that. The biggest thing in Jalen, the biggest feather in Jalen Darden's cap, if we're talking about yeah. the Patriots. And then is there anybody else here? I think that's pretty much it for Yeah, I'll get the one other name I want to mention okay. real quick. But the biggest feather in Jalen Darden's cap in terms of the Patriots is the 31 touchdowns in the last two years. The Patriots love big-time producers, right? They love guys. Yeah have come into the program with really good college production. And Jalen Darden was, yeah, was at North Texas, but he was an absolute video game. Multiple seasons too. Yeah. And 50 plus yard touchdowns we're talking about. Not, not, not gimmies, right? right? He was an absolute Madden simulation at North Texas. And, and that's definitely something he, he looked like a moving at a different speed than everybody else. My concerns with him, like I talked about last show are that, I don't know how much of a downfield receiver he's really going to end up being in the NFL. He might be more of like a Tavon Austin, right, where he's kind of just a gadget player. You're throwing him the ball behind the line of scrimmage. You're passing it off to him in a reverse or a jet sweep. You're scheming him open, screen passes, things like that. How much of the downfield route running when he gets into physical press man coverage in the league is going to translate? That That's going to be his sort of speed bump to overcome. Right. That's going to be the hurdle for him. I'd much rather take him. This this ranking has Tutu Atwell ahead of him. I'd much rather take a chance on Jalen Darden than Tutu. So Atwell this is, by the way, this is the consensus. You can see at the top here, like they'll they pull mock drafts from everywhere and big boards from everywhere and come up with the consensus and what everybody's thinking. So this is, you know, it's a little weighted, right? Because this goes back a year, and and you know, guys who are late risers might be a little lower. Like you know, you have. Uh, where is he? All the way down here, Des Fitzpatrick. But this yeah. is this is the consensus right now is how these kind of how these guys stack up. So the only other uh, day three guy I wanted to mention yeah. was uh, Shai Smith from South Carolina. Right there, yep. Uh, I think that he had a fantastic senior bowl week. The guy that nobody could cover in one on ones down in Mobile. If the Patriots really put as much emphasis on the senior bowl as they have in years past, he was somebody that was as clear as day as a demon in the slot. You know, just an absolute handful. He played really well in the game, too. So he's the last name that kind of a day three flyer, if you will, you know, someone that maybe that they can get in the fourth or the fifth round. She's, Shai Smith uh, from South Carolina is a good one as well. So that, that I, I think is a pretty good summation of the slot receivers in the draft. It's, it's such a deep slot receiver draft. I mean, Nico Collins, Col- uh, Cornell Powell, um, obviously at the top of the draft with Jamar Chase. There are uh, Terrace Marshall from LSU. Jonathan there Adams. Yeah, there are Jonathan Adams later on in the draft. There are some pure X's as well, but it's definitely more heavily geared towards the slot guys. A few more questions that I wanted to get to here. Um, yep. Somebody asking about next year's quarterback class, and I don't want to talk about next year's quarterback class yet because I want to make a point to mention we cannot properly – forecast next year's quarterback class until the fall season because so many guys in recent memory, Zach Wilson, Joe Burrow, Kyler Murray, Baker Mayfield, go right on down the line of players that Mac Jones, even to a degree, right, were projected third round picks, fourth round picks. We don't really like this guy athlete, but not a quarterback, you know, all these types of things being thrown out the year before they go out, they win the Heisman trophy, the next off season and the next season in the fall and the narrative completely shifts on that player. So I have a really tough time 
of projecting 2022 quarterbacks right now because I mean I have I have the big board up there the consensus big board we can put it up but I'm just saying from a from a analysis standpoint to me like we don't know I really like Spencer Rattler I think he's going to be a good player too I think Desmond Ryder is a really interesting prospect as well and I just looking through this board, you know, there's a couple guys like Carson Strong maybe could have a big year. Um, I, I know that there's some love for him. Tanner Morgan, Minnesota maybe could have. Tanner King, Michael Penix actually. Michael Penix I think could be a really good player. He tore his ACL last year, so it's going to be really interesting to see how he bounces back. But yeah, you're right. It it, it the quarterback board develops so bizarrely and very so late. It's a very late developing board. Usually we can project other positions at this point of who's going to be sort of the Chase Young, who's going to be the Micah Parsons, yeah. right? You know, who's going to be that guy? Like we knew Micah Parsons was going to be a, a top 15 pick a year ago, right? We didn't right. need the, the fall season to find that out. But I, I, I still think with quarterbacks, there's so much development that goes on during games that we're not there yet to be able to say, is this a good quarterback class coming up? Is it a well, bad quarterback class? If, if you need convincing, let's go back a year. You had Trevor Lawrence was the 1-1. We all knew that. Justin Fields was a top five. Beyond that, I don't think any of the other guys right now were, were first round consensus. Mac Jones certainly wasn't. I think Trey Lance was, was relatively out of left field. Zach Wilson, you know, came on this year. He certainly wasn't a guy that, people were talking about yeah. and then you go further down i mean there was a time when shane bouchelle was going to be a first round pick, right and he's going to be maybe day three so it it just changes so much it changes so much and you just have to look maybe nobody does develop and next year's a bum class but that would be that would be an oddity that would be yeah. a rarity if it does you just kind of have to assume that somebody somewhere is going to develop yeah, so that that's my rant about the quarterbacks is that I just sort of feel like we always do this and we say I've seen it all all of our podcasts, all of our chats. People are constantly like, "Well, next year's quarterback class sucks." We don't know that yet. Right. We really don't know that yet. Uh, Sam Howell, Desmond Ryder. I think Sam Howell is going to fall. By the way, I don't think if, Sam Howell ends up being QB one next year. But I'll give all you- those guys are good are good prospects right now. Let's see how they play in the fall before we start right. stacking all these players. Here's if, if you want names to watch to sound smart and talk to your friends. Desmond Riddler from Cincinnati is certainly one. Yeah, a lot of people like my guy. A lot of people like JT Daniels from Georgia on um, on him. Tanner Morgan from Minnesota. To Eric King from Miami is going to be a Heisman candidate. He's a, a, an explosive, athletic quarterback. Could do a ton. He's a ton of fun. I mentioned yep. Michael Penix from Indiana had a great start to last season before he tore his ACL. So we'll see what he looks like on the other side. And then uh, Talia Tagovailoa. I don't know if he's coming out next year. He might stay, but to his brother at Maryland is okay. could be could be in the class next year. Some of those guys, I think. I think Penix too has another year of eligibility, so he could go back. But if you want to sound smart, those are the names. Okay, so let's tackle this one last question because somebody asked me directly why I am not willing to give Nikhil Harry one more year, and my answer to that is two things. One. How many more years do we have to give Nikhil Harry to work it out before we just decided it's not going to work here? I'm not One more, him, apparently. I'm, I'm not giving, calling him a bus. I'm not, I'm not trying to throw the guy under the bus. But how many more snaps, how many more games do we have to show you on tape of him not being able to create separation, of him struggling to get off coverage, for him uh, being slow off the line of scrimmage or his footwork being off off the line of scrimmage or at the top of the route? This is a player to me – 
that lacks those quick twitch movements that create separation in the NFL. And his footwork guru, Rashad Winfield, who I've talked to a couple of times, he's the one that keeps on harping on that to me is that Nikhil Harry just doesn't move fast enough, right? He's just not sudden enough. He's not explosive enough in his movements that guys are not uncomfortable covering him. And maybe in a more vertical-based scheme, maybe if they draft Justin Fields and they go up the offense and all that stuff like that, maybe he can be turned into a jump ball specialist. Maybe he could turn into a red zone threat in that sort, you know, kind of respect. But again, I just don't think that he is ever going to develop the way the Patriots want route runners to develop. And that to me is going to be a problem. And the other thing I will say is something I mentioned on Twitter the other day was that at this point they have Nelson Aguilar, Kendrick Bourne, Jacoby Myers, maybe another top 100 pick at wide receiver, where are the reps, right? Where are the reps? And they have two tight ends that they want to get on the field, obviously, as well. So he's going to be the fourth or the fifth receiver on the depth chart next year, and I just don't see the reps for him to develop as a player here. I think for both sides, the best thing is to move on. For Nikhil, too, for his sake as well. And I think with the reps argument, you take that a step further, where's the roster spot? Right. You mentioned, again, it's Aguilar, Bourne, Myers. Yep. I'll throw Gunner in there. Right. Potential draft pick. That's five receivers. Yeah. You're probably going to have four tight ends. I know you think they might be done with Izzo. I think Izzo gets another year. Dalton Keene. Uh, Dalton, thank you. Dalton yeah. Keene gets another year. Uh, that's, that's nine. Now you're keeping nine pass catchers. That's like 15, 20% of your roster. That's just not... You need depth at other places. They still need a third corner, right? They still need to add there. They still need depth on the offensive line. And they're they going to probably have to carry three quarterbacks too. So. They're probably going to end up carrying three quarterbacks, right? right? I just don't know. I think if you move Nikhil Harry again, I think he needs a change of scenery. He needs to go somewhere where he's going to be able to play more to his strengths. And the Patriots, you know, if we're talking about, you know, Nikhil can still improve. You can use that roster spot and draft a wide receiver or maybe a running back and get a guy who will still improve, but is maybe maybe better tailored to your system. I still don't believe Nikhil Harry's a bad football player. I wouldn't be shocked if he goes somewhere and catches, yeah, you know, 40 passes for five, 600 yards and a couple touchdowns. I think he could do that. It's just at the end of the day, they're having him play to his weaknesses instead of his strengths. And that's why you're seeing what you see. And if that's going to be the case, if they're not going to let him be a bully wide receiver and throw him 50, 50 balls, jump balls, you know, fades. If they're not going to do that, there is no point to keep him on the roster. You're only hurting him and you're hurting yourself. So that, that's, I think where you have to be at with Harry. With the Patriots, their wide receiver position, Jacoby Myers is the guy that works out, right? The guy that understands how to attack coverage, understands how to get open at the top of the route. That's what works out here in New England. And Nikhil Harry has never been able to show those types of things to me. He is a raw physical specimen, no doubt about it. But that's what his strength is. Go send him to Russell Wilson in Seattle. And I'm sure Russell Wilson would make him a viable downfield threat by throwing him jump balls and accurate deep balls. But unless they're going to get, like I said, maybe Justin Fields can get that out of him. Maybe Cam can get that out of him. But for the most part, I just don't see a good fit here in, in New England. And I think the best thing for both sides at this point is to move on. The tape improvement, it was marginal. Like there were some moments where it was better. I'd say his usage got a little bit better towards the end of last year. And they kind of using him in that Rams game on those double moves and stuff like that sort of got him on a little bit of a consistent basis, but 
it wasn't like all of a sudden he's getting open left and right and, and they're dismissing him, right? It, it, it was right. still a struggle for him. There's just a lot of elements of his game where they're, they're just asking him to run a, a stop route, right? Just run 10 yards, 12 yards down the sideline and stop on, on a two-step stop and get back to the quarterback. He takes five steps to do it, right? He, he, you want right. him to stop down in two steps, he takes four. He, you want him to stop down in two steps and cut inside. He takes three steps and cuts on a, on a, you know, 60 degree angle instead of a 40 degree angle. These are the things that you just watch him do every single week. And you're just like, this is not the Patriots offense. This is not how these guys roll. This is not who the productive players in the history of this scheme have been. And I, I just think it's better for all sides now to just write it off with Nikhil Harry. Again, it's, it's like taking, you know, a big physical, slower man corner and asking him to play single high deep safety. Right. If he sucks at it, it doesn't mean he's a bad player. You're just asking him to do something he's never done and he doesn't know how to do. Right. That's where I think they're at with the queue. Can we get one more quick question? Uh, I really, saw... really quick because I, I got to get going. So really okay. There's just one about Sony Michelle. And I think it is interesting because we do have the fifth year option deadline coming up with both Michelle and Isaiah Wynn. Right. And that, and I think is on the 23rd and it's going to be right before the draft. So those are kind of two of the last, the last three question marks are going to be answered on that day. Is Sony going to be back? If not, I think a running back is in play in the draft late in the draft. Yeah. Is Isaiah Wynn going to be back? If not, I think you're looking at a tackle with the 15th pick and then that's the RFA deadline too. So it'll give us some more clarity to the JC Jackson and Stefan Gilmore saga and what they're doing with those two guys. So I just, it, it's interesting. It's an interesting name. April 23rd. We're going to learn a lot about the future of, of Sony and Isaiah Wynn and J.C. Jackson and Stephon Gilmore. Absolutely. So we can talk about a lot of that more um, after the draft, certainly, and yeah. get into some of these roster decisions that they have coming up or had coming up that maybe will get overlooked by things that are going on in the draft. Alex and I will be back on Thursday night for another live mock draft, uh, the penultimate live mock draft. we got two more that we're going to try to fit in, this one and then the next one. I think we got three more. Three more? If we do one the Tuesday before the draft, we got three more. Okay, so three more. I, I keep on messing up the week. So three I, I, more. This week, it's like nothing. Like next week is pre-draft. This week sucks. Yeah. So three, exist. <laughs> so three more live mock draft Thursday night, uh, same stream, Patriots Press Pass YouTube channel. So hit the sub- subscribe if you like the show. It'll alert you when we go live. But until then, signing off for Alex Barth, I'm Evan Lazar. Thanks for watching, everybody, and thanks for your questions. We really appreciate it.